We're going to begin this morning in Exodus chapter 30, verse number 23. This will be the fifth part and the fourth ingredient of our series on the anointing oil. Verse number 23 says, the King James Version, Take also unto you principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels of sweet cinnamon, half as much, 250 shekels of sweet calamus, 250 shekels of cassia, 500 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary and of olive oil, a hen. And you shall make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be a holy anointing oil. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, I pray that your word would be anointed this morning. I pray that the hearts and the minds of all of us who are here would be anointed to receive your word. And Lord, we just pray that it would do the mighty work inside of us and only your word can do. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated this morning. So if you have been here uh, throughout the duration of this series and you already sort of have a small idea or, or maybe even a large idea of what it means to be anointed and the reasons why we would be concerned with whether or not we are walking in the anointing as Christians this morning, um, I want to encourage you about the place where you're at. I know we have some visitors here, and I just want to let you know there are so many, so many, so many, so many good churches in Houston, in the greater Houston area, and of course across the state and the nation and the world, but just around where you're at, there are so many great churches and so many churches that are called into certain types of ministry. Um, if I was going to break it down, I would say that some some churches... Have follow the anointing of a what would be a priestly anointing, which is a more reverential type of a church. Some churches follow a prophet's anointing, which is typically going to be more of your uh, your spirit filled or um, uh, prophetic type churches or Pentecostal style, perhaps. And then some churches follow the anointing of a king, which are going to be more of your uh, community or, or mega churches uh, that help finance so many other works. That's very general in terms and speaking. We have a whole message based on that. But I want to encourage you this morning um, that we are a church that endeavors to, to go beyond the surface. So we are all about people coming to know their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are all about salvation. We are all about new believers. We are all about conversion. But we do not major on that uh, in a way that we just uh, maintain on that surface level, if you will. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are different style churches for different reasons. But when you step into the sanctuary of Edgewater Church, there are so many things that we are not good at. And then there are so many things that we are good at because we're called to do a certain type of ministry. And one thing that we find um, is, is a pattern here and that we feel confident in is taking you uh, below the surface into the, the deepest waters that we can possibly traverse. It doesn't mean that we're able to go into uh, the deepest depths of the word of God, but we do our best. So um, I just want you to get your mindset this morning. Uh, we're, we're trying to move beyond the beginning. We're trying to dive below the surface of salvation and introduction to Jesus Christ. If you have not made it to that point yet, we would love to pray with you afterwards and get you to that point. If you've already been there, uh, you might hear some terms and some things you haven't heard uh, yet this morning because we do endeavor to go just below the surface. I don't usually say that, so hopefully that was for somebody, help somebody out this morning. Uh, that being said, we're talking about the anointing. Let me give you a couple of reasons why we're talking about the anointing. Isaiah chapter 61, verse number 1. Isaiah 61 and 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now this is a verse that later on in the New Testament, Jesus Christ will repeat verbatim, and so it's a prophetic scripture uh, speaking about him. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Everybody say anointed. anointed. To preach the good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those that are bound. So we are, all of those things sound positive. And we are obviously big fans of doing all of those things, setting the captives free, preaching the good tidings, binding up the brokenhearted, all of that good stuff. But I think maybe sometimes what we fail to realize in Christendom is that in order to step beyond the void, if you will, of just coming to the altar and accepting Jesus Christ, to be able to get out there and live a Christian life. How many of you are interested in living a Christian life? 
there's a, we're tired this morning. How many of you are interested in living a Christian life? Come on, I was making sure it's in the right place. This is Edgewater, right? Is that, okay, making sure. Is this thing on? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, so we're interested in living the Christian lifestyle. If you're going to do that, there's a certain thing that I promise you will need, whether you realize it or not, and it's called the anointing. You need to be able to step out as an anointed child of God. How do I know that for sure? Uh, let's, let's move on to uh, one more teaching. Uh, Ted, if you would, put the slide up on the, uh, on the screen behind me. We, we call ourselves Christians, and we, we know the name of our Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ. But in reality, Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. Jesus is a name, uh, which is a, of Hebrew origin and would be pronounced Yeshua. And what it means is Yahweh, my salvation, or Jehovah, my salvation. And there's a lot that goes into that name. But Christ is not a name. It is not his last name. He was Jesus, son of Joseph, or, or Bar Yusuf, if you wanted to give him a last name. Uh, but what's important is that when we call ourselves Christians, we are labeling ourselves after the title of our Messiah. So I think it would be maybe sort of important to kind of understand what that title means. It's of Greek origin. The Christos, and it has one possible meaning. It means anointed. Everybody say anointed. So for some of us, this series has been an introduction to understand for the very first time that whenever you have at any point in your life declared that you are a Christian, you may be unknowingly declared that you are anointed. The bad news is, if you didn't know that, then you don't know how to properly respect that or work with that. The good news is you're, you're able to walk in the anointing of Jesus Christ. Amen. He said, even greater works than these shall you do. But you don't just wake up one day and do them because you went through confirmation or a Sunday school class. It's based on his anointing. Amen? Amen. Everybody say anointed. <laughs> so when we would naturally have the question, well, what does it mean to be anointed? Jesus speaks through Paul in the book of Galatians and says your schoolmaster for teaching and understanding is your Old Testament. When you understand certain things about your Old Testament, you can then understand how to manifest those things in the spiritual realm of your New Testament or New Covenant church, which is where we're at in 2014, where we've been at since the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's go backwards to go forward. We're going to reread Exodus chapter 30. Take also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels. We've already had our message on that. We've already spoken about the cinnamon. We've already spoken about the calamus. We're in verse 24. The fourth ingredient is the cassia, 500 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. And that's where we're going to be at this morning. We're going to be speaking about this particular ingredient. For those of you that haven't been here and haven't listened to the podcast, I'll give you a, a brief rundown. The myrrh, uh, as we studied the myrrh, we saw that as one of the, the gifts that the wise men brought forth, not at, the, uh, not at the actual birth, but at the time that they reached um, Jesus Christ at a young age, and the wise men brought the three gifts, the, the myrrh, the frankincense, and the gold. And when we studied myrrh, what we found was the way they cultivated the myrrh was they went out to a gum tree in, in, in the Arabic regions, and they would take uh, something that looked like a cat of nine tails, which would be the type of whip that was used to scourge Jesus Christ before he went to the cross. And they would literally beat the tree and scar the tree so that it would bleed the sap or the myrrh that was in it. Now, you could just put a spile in there and let it and let it drip out, but you wouldn't be able to cultivate enough myrrh to sell it commercially. So instead, they had to go and beat the tree so that it would bleed an excess of myrrh. But the most pure form was the form that came out on its own if you had a little patience. And we looked at the life of Jesus Christ and how he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and patiently prayed and said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And his blood, the sweat of his brow, the Bible says, turned into blood and began to drip on the ground. So he was already willing to give us what we ended up beating out of him in the end, which was his pure blood, his sinless blood. So just like the myrrh tree, we saw that the uh, this was a type of the scourging uh, that he would endure. And then the next step was the cinnamon, the cinnamon, which was the sweet bark. We looked at how that was cultivated and treated and the, and the Hebrew words for that. And um, it was very evident that that represented the cross or repentance. Uh, then we looked at the calamus. The calamus was a leaf. 
the leaf, they, they would use the root in the actual anointing oil, but the leaves were used in people's homes and in buildings. They would bruise the leaves and they would release a sweet odor, uh, which is reminiscent of what the Bible says about our prayers. Uh, but the root itself was always submersed in just enough water to cover it and was an, an interesting root because instead of laying vertically, it always laid horizontal. So we saw a type of baptism in that root, which follows suit. We see repentance through the, the blood and the cross. We see baptism next. And now we're on the Keisha in verse number 24. So we've already covered a lot of ground, but I just wanted to get you there um, to where we're at this morning. Keisha is an interesting herb, an interesting plant. Before we get there, I want to I reiterate with one more scripture why it's important for us to learn these ingredients. Let's go to uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. This is a very popular scripture that I think we don't fully understand. A lot of Christians don't fully understand. The reason um, is going to be on the screen in front of you. There we go. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. We, we know that verse. It's an encouraging verse. It's a verse we use anytime as Christians. We, we're, we find ourselves in a situation that is difficult. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And we think about our Lord and Savior. We think about a person. In other words, it would be as if that verse said, I can do all things through Jesus, but that's not what it says. It says, I can do all things through Christ. That's very important because of the very next word. If it was talking about a person, it would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But instead it says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. What does Christ mean? Anointed. anointed. Everybody say anointed. anointed. So anytime that you're reading your Bible, you can um, symbolically, if you will, Anytime that you run across the word Christ, you can replace that word with the anointing and the anointed one. And in this case, you could read, I can do all things through the anointing, which strengthens me. So it's important to realize it's not as proverbial as we think of it. What I mean by that is I can do all things through Jesus. Where's Jesus at? Right. It's a good, encouraging thought. But you need to do something and get it done right now. It's going to be done through Jesus who strengthens you, but you don't see him standing in front of you. So it's more of a motivation because I'm a Christian, because Jesus is a conqueror, because of what he did. I'm going to get through this situation and that's OK. But I want to tell you, there is a more applicable manifestation of that scripture. Once you understand the anointing is something that rests upon you, the anointing is something that can be found in you, you don't have to rely on uh, that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. You can rely on the fact that he said, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit and I'm going to give it to you now. That you have the ability right now to walk in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. So when you find yourself in a situation that is hard to overcome, you can understand that you can do all things through the anointing which strengthens you. It doesn't make sense. I hope it will by the time we're done. Keisha is an interesting ingredient. We'll jump right into it. Keisha is actually, uh, whenever you go to the grocery store, 90% of the time or more, uh, when you go to buy cinnamon, you're not actually buying cinnamon. Real cinnamon, which is 30% or less of things that are sold under the title of cinnamon in the U.S., is very difficult to find and very expensive to buy. Probably at some point in your life, you have decided you were going to put a cinnamon stick into something or give somebody a cinnamon stick to put into their coffee or whatever it is that, that they might use it for. If you've ever seen a cinnamon stick, you probably recognize it as like a hard type of bark that's rolled from both sides. It kind of looks like a scroll, right? Is that how you envision a cinnamon stick? Anytime you see that, that's not cinnamon. That's keisha. Cinnamon doesn't roll from both sides. It only rolls from one side. It is a bark, but it's a lot softer. It's also flakier, and you can see the layers. So anytime, and I've personally never seen one in real life. I've seen it uh, online. You can Google it. Uh, but whenever you're buying cinnamon, whether it's a stick or whether it's ground, more often than not, you're buying keisha. And more often than not, it comes from China. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> made in China. But all the made in China stickers are made in the U.S., so we get a little bit of that. Um, Acacia cinnamon is used um, in a lot of things. It's used in suntan lotions, nasal sprays, mouthwashes, gargles, toothpaste, 
a lot of other things that you can find um, in your everyday shopping. But one of the main uses uh, from antiquity until now of Keisha is as a counter irritant. A counter irritant is something that you apply to the skin. It's a substance that creates pain and swelling at the point of application with the goal of lessening pain and swelling at another location. So in other words, if you have a real wound that's, that's very painful, your body sends out pain receptors to that wound, and the, the physical feeling that you feel are those pain receptors sending signals back to your brain that it, your body needs to release white blood cells or whatever it needs to release to kind of combat uh, whatever's going on at that point. Acacia oil can be applied to create a false area of pain that really doesn't need any help at all, but the pain receptors in your body will be signaled to that area so that you'll feel more of the pain where the acacia is at, but you'll know in your mind there's nothing wrong with your arm or wherever you put the oil on, so it's a lot easier to deal with, and it'll lessen the actual pain of the place where you were hurt. A counter-irritant. I want to read to you real quick Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 3. It reads, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone into his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the shearer, he is dumb, so that he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. That is a personification of the fourth ingredient of the anointing oil. That is a counter-irritant. When you think about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we think about the cross, and sometimes we wear it around our neck. And we remember that He died for us, and we're reminded of that often, and hopefully that produces a sense of reverence or a sense of worship. And then hopefully it takes us to the next step, and we think about His resurrection, and we rejoice in the fact that He is alive, And we rejoice in the fact that he is available. And we rejoice in the fact that his Holy Spirit is here. But sometimes through all of that, we forget what was actually placed upon him. Sometimes we don't like to think about the fact that because of our sin, because of our transgression, because of our shortcomings... He went through and endured certain things. In other words, we live in America where it's safe. We live in America where we enjoy freedom, where we enjoy certain laws. We enjoy a certain way, a certain standard of living. And we get comfortable. We get caught up in our physical lifestyle. And we know that the, uh, the cause and effect of certain things. We know what we can get away with and what we can't get away with, what we can do, what will get us in trouble, what type of trouble it will get us in, whether it's worth it or not. And we know what not to do. And we're very familiar with that. But we are obscenely unfamiliar with how that works in the spiritual realm. Because, see, in the spiritual realm, we don't deal with everyday disobedience. We deal with sin, which is disobedience to God, which cuts us off from fellowship with our Creator. The fortunate and unfortunate event that took place through the absolute torture of Jesus Christ is that when you sin... You will never experience the applicable punishment of your sin. You can do something wrong in the spiritual realm and you can turn around and repent 
You can ask for forgiveness, and it doesn't mean, depending on what you did, there might be physical repercussions. In other words, if you broke the law, you might go to jail. But because you sinned, you will never be beaten and tortured in the spirit. Because you have fallen short of the glory of God does not equal you spending eternity in hell. Because you didn't revere God, you didn't revere the Lord, does not end in your chastisement and your punishment. Because God sent the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb, the sinless one, who deserved no punishment, who deserved no wrongdoing, who didn't deserve death, to stand in your spot as the Keisha, as the false cinnamon, as a replication, as a representation, and every wrong thing that everyone ever did, that you have done in your life, that you will do in the future, was all upon him at one time. When he took upon the sin of the world, he took upon the chastisement and the punishment for every thought you've ever had, for every ill word you've ever spoken, every time you failed to love, every time you failed to reach out, every time you decided to act more like the devil than God, so to speak, you still, at the end of the day, by simply believing in Jesus Christ, can enjoy heaven for eternity. And you don't deserve that. And I don't deserve that. It's funny, when you live a Christian lifestyle, and maybe it's magnified in ministry, I don't know, but it seems like you go through certain seasons where you deal with certain things in your walk. And it's not as if you ever completely conquer or eviscerate certain things, but along the way, they just, they just, they just seem to go away in lieu of the next thing. And I think it, it has a little bit to do with God wanting you to grow and a little bit to do with the enemy getting frustrated that whatever he was doing in your life for that little season wasn't working. So it's not that that thing's gone, but he's going to move on to the next thing. Point in, in case, I used to deal with this question a lot. Why would a loving God ever send anybody to hell? And it was so, it's so funny because it seems like for a long time, I think even a number of years, that was a difficult to deal with question. That was something that kept coming up, kept with something I would go to sleep at night and think about and how to answer and how to come up with a good answer and what scriptures were applicable. It seems like for years... That was a big thing. Maybe it's because I was dealing with youth in college. I don't know what it is, but I don't ever get that question anymore. It's weird. I know it's still out there. I know people still have that question. I know somebody in the world right now is dealing with that question every single day the way that I used to deal with it every single day, but I don't deal with it anymore. It's weird how it just goes away. But there's a lot of good answers. The best answer that for me in my life that I ever found was the fact that um, a loving God doesn't send us to hell. A loving God found a way beyond hope and reason to give us a path to possibly go to heaven. We were already on our way to hell. We completely all deserve that because we are not good. We are not inherently righteous. We are not inherently holy. We don't naturally follow after the things of God. We naturally care more about ourselves and pleasuring our flesh, and what feels good, and what is selfish, and what will get us to the next place or the next level. We don't naturally sacrifice ourselves or decide to give our will over to somebody else, that somebody in the scenario being God. Which means we were living life in the fast lane, if you will, but we had no idea that, that the last exit on that fast lane was a little place called hell where we're headed and somehow beyond hope and comprehension jesus christ stepped into the picture and built an alternate exit ramp right before that road ended and said hey i've got one way only one way but on your way to your final destination which seemed like it was so much fun along the way there's this one little exit called the blood of jesus christ and i found a way beyond the way to get you into heaven Oh, but I can't force you to do it. I'm just asking you, will you please take this exit somewhere along the way? That is a loving God. He sent his only begotten son to fight the battle for us. Let's read it again. Despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, hid our faces from him. He was despised. We didn't esteem him. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him. We did not esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for what? Our transgressions. Have you ever seen a movie or a television series or read a book where one of the characters suffered the consequences for something that somebody else did? Or have you ever experienced that in your own life? I'll tell you a story. Uh, let me put somebody else in this place since my parents are here. Once upon a time, there was a little kid who had a sister, older sister, and uh, they used to really enjoy eating those pixie stick things. Y'all remember those? The little, just rip the top off. I mean, they, I don't even know. How could anybody pay money for that? That's like one pour, it's gone, the whole thing fits on your tongue. <laughs> Such a ripoff. I don't know what they charged for it, but they made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, five-hour energy back in the day. So, powder form. So we enjoyed those pixie sticks quite a bit. We didn't enjoy throwing them away, though, apparently. Because, uh, well, I don't mean we, I mean these kids. And uh, so these kids would leave their pixie stick wrappers on the floor, and uh, one or more of their parents would get really upset uh, with trash being all over the house. And so one or more of their parents would warn them quite often to stop doing that or there are going to be consequences. One of the little kids, I believe it was the little boy, caught on and decided he was going to start throwing his trash away like a good little boy. The sister, on the other hand, decided she wasn't as interested in that. So one day, one of the parents got home and found, if I remember correctly, a green pixie stick uh, wrapper on the floor, got, took the little boy by the hand, led him over to the green pixie stick wrapper on the floor and said, what did I tell you? about leaving your trash on the floor. And then proceeded to, the kid got in a lot of trouble. And didn't have a chance to say that it wasn't his because he started getting in trouble before he was able to. And the type of trouble that he got into didn't allow for a whole lot of talking. And uh, so by the time he was able to regain his composure, (laughs) he was finally able to tell his side of the story. Needless to say, one or more of the parents felt really, really bad. And then, uh, <laughs> and then the, uh, and then the older sister um, got hers. <laughs> yeah, so it all worked out. But I, I remember when, uh, when these people were telling me this story, how bad I felt for that little boy getting in trouble for something that he didn't do. Um, Now, I don't know if you've ever been at that place in your life or you've ever seen that. I mean, there are so many great stories and so many movies that are based on um, a a character that we fall in love with and ends up paying the price for something they didn't do. And that just it gives you such a sense of injustice and a sense of longing and and, and anger when you see that happen. Uh, Good people going through bad things, all that kind of sort of deal. Sometimes we fail to realize when we're looking at or thinking of Jesus Christ on that cross, he, doesn't, he shouldn't be up there. He should have never gotten there. But once upon a time, he had a discussion with his father. And at some point, he realized the anointing that was available and the price that he was going to have to pay in order to walk in that anointing. He was going to have to pay the price of myrrh. He was going to have to pay the price of cinnamon. He was going to have to pay the price of Calamus. He was going to have to pay the price of Keisha. And eventually the price of the olive oil. This is the story of the price that he paid for the Keisha. I'm going to read a little bit about how Keisha is cultivated. If my iPad decides to work correctly. Let's see. What they do is they build a scaffolding around, again, a certain tree. They do this so that they can climb to the top without damaging the bark. For peeling the bark off, they tie a string around the stem and the big branches at a distance of 40, 50 centimeters for marking. 
sharp knives and chisels are used to cut the bark around the stem and branch. Two such round cuts are made 40 centimeters apart. The bark is then cut in longitudinal strips or stripes 40 to 50 centimeters apart with a sharp knife. These stripes are then peeled off using two knives or bamboo splits. In the south, prior to harvesting a circle of bark 5 to 10 centimeters wide from the base of the trunk is taken for facilitating the subsequent peeling. Afterwards, people use rattan to tie around the trunk for making a ladder for climbing. The peeling is done from the top downward in stripes of 40 to 50 centimeters long in a convenient width, and people avoid cutting down the tree completely because then the peeling becomes difficult. After peeling the trunk and big branches, the tree is cut down for collecting the bark. When you read the details about how they cultivate the acacia, I want to read to you again verse number 5 of Isaiah chapter 53. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Amen. With his stripes, we are healed. It says they avoided cutting down the tree because if they cut down the tree, it was harder to strip. So they didn't want to kill it before they cut the stripes into it. Same way that Jesus Christ went to the whipping post. Same way that they did what they did to him before they hung him up on the cross and before he died. They made separate wounds in the tree the way they made separate wounds in Christ. They put stripes down the tree the way that he took stripes on his back, at least 40 lashes or more. And by those stripes, we are healed. But I want to share with you something that I find very interesting. In the Hebrew text, when you go to Isaiah 53 and 5, it doesn't say that we're, that we're healed by his stripes. It says, by his stripe, we are healed. Singular, not plural. Which means... <coughs> <coughs> If he took <clears throat> it's gonna work, it's gonna happen. One second. If he took forty lashes, that was thirty-nine too many. I've got two cups of water already. Thanks though. Yeah. If he took forty lashes, he took thirty-nine too many. Really, when they took him to the whipping post, <clears throat> the very first time that they opened his skin and he bled a drop of blood, that was enough. That was enough for your healing. Why is that? Because it was innocent blood. The Bible says the transgressions are passed down through the blood of the Father. His Father was not of earth. His Father was God in heaven. He had no sin placed upon him, nor had he sinned in the 33 and a half years in which he had walked the earth. There is, the Bible says that death is the wages of sin. So therefore, if somebody had never sinned, they had never earned the wage of death. So he literally had completely innocent blood. And that innocent blood had no place inside of a sin-filled realm. That blood had the power to heal. Because not only is death the wages of sin, but everything that precedes death is the wages of sin. Sickness is the wages of sin. Disease is the wages of sin. Uh, pain is the wages of sin. Depression is the wages of sin. Despondency is the wages of sin. Everything that leads up to a person physically leaving this world is based on the sin that happened in the very beginning. So when Jesus Christ walked this earth, born of women, but his father was God in heaven, having no sin in his blood and having no sin in his life. And they put him up on that whipping post and they began to beat him. And it wasn't just the blood that he voluntarily gave up, but it was blood that they were not lawfully able to take. In other words, the enemy had begun his own transgression. There are certain laws in the spirit that are unbreakable. You do not die if you have not sinned. And if the enemy violates one of his laws, then God gets to come back with a punishment or a reward, depending on which side of the line you're standing on, that is not normal. In other words, God had to leave this earth because of sin and was not able to do certain things. But the moment that his sinless son went to that post and began to bleed and was on his way to death, God got to overcome the devil in a certain way because it was illegal what he was doing. So God got to overstep his bounds. And now his kingdom, which was formerly not able to be on this earth, is able to be on this earth through his people. Because we are called the body of Christ and Christ was without sin and suffered something that only a sinful person should have suffered. So the moment they opened up his back, 
the moment he began to bleed, sin began to retreat. Death began to retreat. Sickness began to retreat. Illness began to retreat. I'm sorry if it sounds weird and if you haven't experienced it in your life, but I've got to tell you the truth of the word of God this morning. Because he was the one that suffered the myrrh, because he was the one that suffered the calamus, because he was the one that suffered the cinnamon and the acacia, if you are sick in your body, he is able to heal you. If you have not found victory, he is able to give it to you. If there's something that you need, he is able to deliver. He is still a God of miracles. He is still a God of power. He is still a God of authority. He has all power. Amen. There's nothing bigger than God. If it's a relationship, he has the answer. The moment that that skin was opened up. Interestingly, in Isaiah 53, the couple of verses we didn't read, verse 1 and 2, it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, And as a root out of dry ground. So preceding everything that we just read is the likeness of Jesus Christ as a root in a tender plant. In Isaiah 53, he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. That is directly linked to Jesus Christ saying, take up your cross daily and follow after me. We talked about that with the cinnamon, how he had not yet been crucified, yet he encouraged his disciples to take up their cross daily and follow after him. That was reminiscent of sacrifice and the sweet bark and the cinnamon right here in Isaiah 53. He was stricken and smitten. That is related to the myrrh, the tree that was stricken and smitten. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The calamus leaves were wounded and bruised in order to release the the odor by his stripes we are healed. There were stripes placed on this tree that gave us the acacia. And then in verse number six and seven, it says we laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And what we're going to figure out next week is the way you get the oil out of the olive is by oppressing it. So in Isaiah chapter 53, you have all five descriptions of all five ingredients. I want to go back to the beginning and read you what he repeated out of the book of Isaiah. When he said that God has anointed him to preach. Isaiah 61 and 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Myrrh, calamus, cassia, cinnamon, olive oil. Myrrh, calamus, cassia, cinnamon, olive oil. The Lord has anointed me to preach. Good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to all of those that are oppressed. I want to share with you a couple more scriptures and we'll bring it to a conclusion. Psalm chapter 45. And if you want to place your finger on Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to tie two scriptures together. Psalm 45 verse 6 says, Thy throne, O God is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God thy God has anointed thee, if I say anointed, with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh, aloes, and cassia, out of the ivory places whereby they have made thee glad. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. But unto the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. What you get out of the old that you don't get in the new is that it's related to three things, myrrh, aloes, and cassia. And, of course, we are magnifying and we are focusing on the cassia this morning. I want to tell you why that's there here in just a second. I want to reread it one time. Under the sun, he says, thy throne. Everybody say throne. O God is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. How many of you want to be anointed? How many of you understand that you need that? How many of you understand that if you've called yourself a Christian, you've called yourself anointed? Amen. Kadad is the Hebrew word for kasha. It means to bow down, to cleave. Or to be cut off. To bow down, to cleave, or to be cut off. Revelation chapter 5 verse 8. 
when he had taken the book, the four twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. That word means to bow down and to cleave. To bow down and to cleave is a depiction of prayer. To read in Revelation chapter 5, where the 24 elders, they bow down before God, and their prayers, they have odors, which are the prayers of the saints. These odors come up um, as, a, as an incense. It looks like steam. They, they used to make these incense inside the temple. This incense is related to our prayers, but it's also related to the Holy Spirit. So I want to tie all this together for you real quick. Acacia is sold as cinnamon because it's so similar, yet it's very different. The cinnamon, pay attention, represents Jesus Christ at the cross. The cinnamon is the sweet bark. The cinnamon is the one that was coppiced whenever they cultivated it, which means that uh, you have to listen to that podcast. It's going to take too long. But we, uh, when, we, when we taught it, it was very evident that it represented the cross. So when we come to cinnamon, it represents repentance. It represents salvation. That's a step that you have to take in order to walk in the anointing. The cinnamon, however, he said, you need 250 shekels in the anointing oil. The acacia, you need 500 shekels, twice as much. Acacia is just like cinnamon, but it's a little bit different. When he says acacia in Psalm chapter 45, he doesn't relate it to the cross. He relates it to the throne. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So here's the deal, and I hope this all makes sense. When you come to Jesus Christ, when you come to God for the very first time, you approach him at the cross. And we, like we said earlier, we make jewelry, we sell jewelry, we have paintings, we have depictions of Jesus Christ on the cross, and we act like that's the most uh, reverent thing that's ever happened in Christianity. And it's up there for sure. But we wear it like it's also the most powerful thing that's happened in Christianity. And it's up there for sure. But it represents the cinnamon. It represents 250 shekels. It represents salvation. And at salvation, you are filled with the Spirit. Are you with me? You are filled with the Spirit. However... The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that first we should repent, then we should be baptized, which we saw in the Calamus, and then we should receive the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, five books in a row, which, by the way, how many ingredients are there in the anointing oil? Five ingredients, five books, five times. He said, or through John, he actually said in the book of Acts, in the other four books, John said, there is, I come to baptize you with water, but there is one who comes after me who is coming to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ said, tarry in Jerusalem, which they were bowed down and cleaved together in one place with one mind and one accord and one prayer until you be endued with power from on high. That word endued means clothed in the Greek. And what happened on the 50th day was the Holy Spirit came. They heard a, like a, a mighty rushing wind, saw cloven tongues like as a fire. It fell upon all of them who had already been saved but not baptized in the Holy Ghost. And they all spake in tongues and prophesied. Now the Bible speaks to us through Elijah and Elisha and in the New Testament of a double portion. The double portion, if you're with me this morning, if I haven't confused you, the double portion is portion number one, at salvation you're filled with the Spirit and heaven is yours. Absolutely 110%. We're not taking that away from you. Portion number two is when you receive the Spirit on the outside, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, when you wear it like a jacket in the Greek. There are signs that come with that. There is evidence that comes with that. And when you receive that baptism of the Holy Ghost, now you have, the Bible says, every day of war, your flesh is trying to pull you one way, your spirit's pulling you the other way, the, the fight is over your soul. When you have the Spirit on the inside and the outside, it's like a Holy Spirit sandwich. And your flesh is in the middle. It's, yeah, it's good. Have one for lunch later. <laughs> Holy Spirit sandwich. And your flesh is in the middle. And it's a lot more difficult for your flesh to get out. It's a lot more difficult for your flesh to go the way your flesh wants to go. When you've received the double portion. So he says, after the cinnamon, 250 shekels. After the calamus, 250 shekels. I want to give you a double portion, 500 shekels of the acacia. How do you receive that Holy Ghost? Well, part of it is you need to be bowed down, like the word means. You need to cleave, like the word means, to God. You need to be cut off, like the word means, from the things of the world. You need to be focused, like the word means, on God for a moment. You have to be willing to take punishment that wasn't yours, that wasn't due you. You have to be willing to pay a price. You have to be willing to be a representative of Jesus Christ. You've got to be willing to walk that walk. Amen. It's painful. To get to that place, there's a price that has to be paid. 
But the value of walking out underneath the anointing of Jesus Christ is beyond any price that you could pay. Remember, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about anointing. If our worship team wants to go ahead and come up, I want to flip to James chapter 4, and we'll end with this thought. James chapter 4. We'll start in verse number 2. It says, you lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have, but you cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. It's pretty simple. What do you need? I've known people that have said they wanted everything that they could get from God. I've known people that have said, I want the Holy Ghost. I want all of it. I want the infilling. I want the baptism. If there's something after that, I want that too. I want whatever it is that God can give me. I want everything. We've shown people, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Somebody showed me, I didn't know what it was. They showed me and they showed my sister and I at the same time, about six months apart. I was able to lead my sister into that understanding. And I'm saying this as an example, not as a a headstrong thing. But whenever I heard about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, I got it in about nine seconds. My sister, it took her nine months. It's not because one person's better than the other. If one person's better than the other, it's probably the person that worked for it for nine months, though, to be honest. How did she get it? Every Sunday, because she said she wanted it, she was at the altar seeking it. Every Wednesday night, she was at the altar seeking it. Every Tuesday night, we had our prayer meetings on Tuesdays at this church. She was there. And we didn't live around the corner. We lived an hour and a half away from our church. One way. So we drove up there every Sunday. You see why I don't have a lot of compassion on you if you miss? We drove up there every Sunday. We drove up there every Wednesday. We drove up there every Tuesday. And usually there was one additional day during the week where something was going on. She didn't, after three months, decide, well... I'll get what God has for me whenever he's ready to give it to me. She understood this scripture. You have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. Now, nine months to God is the same as nine minutes to God is the same as nine seconds to God. It's longer to us, but he doesn't live on that time scale. You have not because you ask not. But then verse number three comes along and says you ask and you don't receive. Because you ask amiss that you may consume upon your own lust. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? But he gives more grace. Wherefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves. Everybody say, bow down. Therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy into heaviness. Humble yourselves on the side of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another. Brethren, he that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you that judges another? In other words, in Isaiah 53... Uh, Jesus Christ is our example. He was led to the slaughter, and the Bible says he didn't open his mouth. The Bible says he was dumb. He was a lamb before the shears, and he let himself be sheared. He could have called down 10,000 angels. He could have accused everybody around him of their own sin. He could have proven that he was without sin, but he didn't open his mouth. He gladly took the pain. He gladly paid the price, and he gladly received the reward. So you're going to go through things in this life. You're going to go through things in this church, but you have to make a decision. And if I were you, I'd make it right now before the things start. Or maybe you're already in the middle of something, but you need to make a decision. Are you going to follow after the example of Jesus Christ? Are you going to follow after the example of the world, which says eye for an eye, justice at all times, get what is due you, accuse everybody else, make your own case. But Jesus says, don't open your mouth against the brother. Go before it as a lamb before the slaughter. Dumb. 
go, go ahead and weep. Let your dancing be turned into mourning. In other words, he's asking you to be reverent. He's asking you to be legitimate for one second. He's not asking you to be sad and be depressed, but he's asking you to be real about what you're doing. I'm so glad. And I was so glad when I found Jesus Christ at the cross. And I'm glad for that jewelry. And I'm glad when I see the pictures. But can I tell you, I'm just a little bit more glad about when I found him at the throne. Because there's something more to the resurrection than there was to the death. I can say that confidently because he didn't say that he came to die on the cross. It was one part of what he did, but he said, I came to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And that didn't happen until he was glorified and lifted up. He came, he didn't come to die. He came to defeat death. Am I right? He came to defeat death. I hope so, because we're all going to encounter it, and I'd rather be able to overcome it. So if we really grasp what was going on, we'd all be wearing little thrones around our necks. Probably not, because I wouldn't. I don't know how you'd make that look good, but still at the same time, at least you'd think about it. He's not on that cross anymore. It's a beautiful picture, but he's not there. He overcame that. He defeated that. Because he is Jesus Christ. He is the anointed one. Amen. So I want to challenge you to make a decision today. A decision of sacrifice. Sacrifice your will, what you think feels good, what you think might be right, for what God calls right and what God calls good. He says that his plan is for whosoever will. He's never going to force you to do it. But your decision has to be to take your free will and give it over to him. And then his will becomes your will. And your will becomes his. Does that make sense? I want to challenge you to do that this morning. If you do that, you'll be more than your average Christian. You'll be more than just saved. You'll be anointed. 